you'll find your place in your Bible at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are three verses there that we're going to focus on today. We're in a series of messages, a four-part series of messages I've entitled Thanks Living. We ought to live every day with thanks in our heart, not just one day a year, not just one week a year, but it ought to be the constant spirit of our lives to give thanks uh, to the Lord for all of the things that He has done and for who He is. And Today we come to the second message in this series. The first one we focused on, on God Himself from Psalm 100. We ought to be thankful for who He is. We ought to be thankful for His attributes. We ought to enter into His courts with thanksgiving and into His, and into his uh, gates with praise. And today we're going to th- thank the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for what He does, the things that He does uh, for us. There's a cute story about a, a very large dog that walked into a butcher's shop carrying a purse in its mouth. As he turned and walked into the butcher shop, he stood and sat right there, I should say, in front of the meat case, and he put the purse down. And the butcher jokingly asked, What is it, boy? Want to buy some meat? Woof! Barked the dog. Well, the butcher was sort of intrigued by this. He said, What kind? Liver? Bacon? Steak? Woof! Interrupted the dog. And how much steak? Half a pound? One pound? Woof! Uh, This butcher was amazed. He wraps up the meat. He looks in the purse. He finds the money for the payment. And then as the dog is leaving, one of the men that has been standing in line behind him watching all of this unfold decides he's going to leave the line. He's going to follow this dog home and see where he goes. So he goes down the street several blocks. He turns into a an apartment building. He goes up three floors, up to the top floor of the apartment building, and standing there, the dog takes his paw and begins to paw at the door, scratch at the door. Well, shortly after he begins doing that, somebody opens the door and with an angry voice yells at the dog. The man who'd followed the dogs yelled back and said, Stop! He's the most intelligent animal I have ever seen in my life. The owner replied, intelligent? Intelligent? This is the third time this week he's forgotten his key. (laughs) Have you ever met somebody that just couldn't seem to please Somebody that just was never happy. Somebody that was ungrateful and unthankful. No matter how good they had it, they just could never see it. It reminds me of a story about an ungrateful person who was a chronic complainer. He saw an advertisement at the local hardware store for a chainsaw. In this particular chainsaw, you could cut down, it said, six trees per hour. This incredible chainsaw. So the customer went to the store. He buys one of these chainsaws. He uses it the next day. That following day, he comes back. He's angry. He's fussing. He's grumbling. He's complaining. And he's demanding a refund. He said, this chainsaw's defective. It took me all day to cut down one tree. Well, the salesman responded and said, well, let me look at it. So he reached down, he picked up the chainsaw, he pulled the cord and started it, and the customer said, what's that noise? (laughs) 
You know, those are sort of funny stories about people who are complainers and grumblers and gripers and murmurers and people who just are not very grateful and are not very thankful. But you know what God wants to develop in each of our lives? He wants us to develop an attitude of gratitude. He wants us to become a people who are thankful. And the reality is this. The one thing that you have control of is your attitude. Your attitude. Dr. Charles Swindoll writes about this matter of the attitude. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me, he says, is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, the education, the money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. He goes on, it's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable things, he says, is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace that day. We have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace that day. We cannot change our past, he says. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. He finishes by saying, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. We are in charge of our attitudes. So how did you wake up today? You say, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You're still in charge of your attitude. Well, my circumstances are bad. You're still in charge of your attitude. There was a professor and author who put it this way. He said, we've taught ourselves to be discontent. We are a people gone crazy with complaints. And I think you'll agree, in our entitled America... We have gone crazy with complaints. So we come to church, it's too hot. Or somebody says it's too cold. Sermon's too long or it's too short. Or it's too far to have to park all the way across the street and walk across the street. Or I don't want to park that close. I, I, I don't want to be where somebody will bump the doors of my car. Seats are too soft or the seats are too hard. Complain, complain. Bring food to us. Not in the service, <laughs> at a restaurant. Bring food to us. We complain, we complain, we complain. And yet it's us who are in charge of our attitude. It's us who have got to learn to live with a thanksgiving in our hearts. And we're going to talk about that today from 1 Thessalonians so let me give you a little bit of a background so that you'll understand the circumstances in which these people find themselves. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, uh, First Thessalonians specifically, it, it may be the earliest New Testament book to be written. Uh, some conservative scholars, actually many conservative scholars, think Galatians was the first book written. And if so, this is the second book earliest book to be written. It was written about A.D. 51 to A.D. 52, somewhere in that time frame. The Apostle Paul had traveled with his friend Silas from Philippi to Thessalonica. It's about a hundred-mile journey. And what he found there in Thessalonica was a cosmopolitan city. They had a beautiful harbor, 
Uh, they were on the famous Roman road, located along the famous Roman road called the Ignatian Way. And consequently, this particular city was a center for travel and for commerce. There were people coming and going from this city all the time. The shipping lanes were not far away from the beautiful port and this road bringing people over land. And so it was a, a gathering place of great busyness and great activity. When the Apostle Paul came there, he came doing what he did everywhere else. He came preaching the gospel. He started in the synagogues and then he moved beyond that and for a while, he was successful. There were people who were receiving Christ and people who were trusting the Lord Jesus. And a church was birthed into existence as a result of the preaching of the Apostle Paul. But soon, they were chased out of town. They were threatened with their lives because of the opposition against them. And so they had to leave these new converts. Understand, they've only been saved a short amount of time. They've only been believers in Jesus a short amount of time, and he has a burden for them. I'm having to leave them without having fully prepared them and giving them all the instruction that I'd really like to give them. So what does he do? After he leaves, he has to write back letters. And these letters come to them, giving them further instruction. Now, if you read 1 Thessalonians, you'll discover there's a number of things that Paul discusses. For instance... Paul had told them about the second coming of Christ. And there were some who believed that it was so imminent that they quit their jobs and they just sat down and they said, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come. And they, they were being busybodies. They weren't working and, and making a living and being able to pay their own way. And they were just sitting on a hillside, I suppose, waiting for Jesus to come. And so Paul had to write back in 1 Thessalonians and give them further instruction. You know, you, you, get, you need to get to work. We don't know exactly when Jesus is coming. We just know that he is coming. There were others who were concerned because of the second coming about what would happen uh, to their loved ones who had already died. Or what if they died before Jesus came the second time? And he had to write and give them some instruction about, you don't have to worry. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we which are alive are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he gives them this instruction. But ultimately, this, the most important purpose for writing this letter is to encourage these young Christians to be faithful in the face of the persecution, the extreme persecution that they were experiencing. I'm not going to ask you to turn back in the, into the book, but just listen. In chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writing says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, and hear the words, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Over in chapter 2 and verse 14, he said, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as we did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Or over in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. In other words, centrally, to this letter that he writes back to these young believers is a reminder that you're going to suffer persecution. There's going to be hardship. Life is not going to be easy. And he wants to stabilize them 
to help them to recognize that the persecution that they're experiencing is something that they should expect. But when he comes to the end of this letter, he, in a bullet point fashion, gives several instructions that are intended to bring stability into their lives. You know what I mean by bullet point fashion? In a bullet point fashion, he gives several instructions that are supposed to bring encouragement and supposed to bring, uh, to, to bring stability back to their lives. In verse 16, you see the first bullet point. He says, rejoice always. In verse 17, you see the second bullet point. Pray without ceasing. And in verse 18, you see the third bullet point. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In other words, in the closing of this letter, writing to people who were suffering, they were going through great difficulties and great trials. Their lives were not easy. He writes to them and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks because there's stability that comes to your life when you learn to live with thanks in your heart. So let's take these three thanks living truths and let's break them apart and make sure that we understand what it is that God is saying to every one of us so that we can live with thanks in our heart to the Almighty God. This first bullet point, he says, rejoice always. You should know that the verb rejoice is a command. It's an imperative. It's in the continuous tense. It means you keep on rejoicing. And the qualifier is always. You keep on rejoicing, qualified by always. He's commanding them to do something. But that means we have to ask a question. And here's the question. Does that mean that we have to constantly have a smile on our face and a bounce in our step? Does that mean that it's a sin uh, to feel sad or to be upset or to get depressed or to grieve over something? Is that what it means when he says rejoice always? Well, listen, here's the thing. If rejoicing always means being always upbeat and never having down emotions, then we've got a real problem. And that problem is that neither Jesus nor Paul rejoiced always under those kinds of conditions. Just to give you a little aside here, something you might want to know as a little tidbit of information, the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is verse 16, rejoice always. It has the fewest number of words with the fewest number of the fewest number of letters. But do you know what is the shortest verse in the English translation of the Greek New Testament? It's found in John chapter 11 and verse 35, and it's the little, little phrase, Jesus wept. Jesus came to the city of Bethany. His friend Lazarus was dead. His sisters were grieving. The whole city was grieving over the death of Lazarus. And it says, Jesus wept. How do you reconcile that with rejoice always that Jesus wept? Well, it goes on. Because in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says about Jesus that he prayed with loud crying and tears. Or in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, it says he was a man that was despised and rejected, a man of, do you know the words? Sorrows 
and acquainted with grief. If rejoice always means that we always wear a smile and we always have a bounce in our step, then even Jesus didn't follow what Paul was saying. Because Jesus grieved and Jesus wept and Jesus was a man of sorrow and Jesus knew something of grief. Even the Apostle Paul wouldn't have qualified under the kind of definition some people give to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, as sorrowful, speaking about himself, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You hear what he says? Weep with those who weep. He didn't say go to those that are weeping and tell them to stop it. It's time to put a smile on your face, put a bounce in your step, and look upbeat again. Let's just do a little positive thinking here. That's not what he told them to do. So what we know is this, that rejoice always doesn't mean that we deny our feelings or put on a happy face or never feel sad. That's impossible. That's impossible. We all sometimes find ourselves depressed, sometimes find ourselves struggling, sometimes crying, sometimes weeping, sometimes sad, sometimes grieving. We all have that in life. Dr. G.L. Green in his commentary on this particular verse says this, the apostles never encouraged believers to deny that adversity brings sadness and grief. But they recognize that in the midst of the most agonizing situations, the presence of God through his spirit can infuse the soul with hope and the heart with joy. This joy, he says, is rooted deeply in the gospel and becomes one of the primary distinctives of the Christian community. In other words, the people that don't know Jesus Christ that are outside of the body of Christ look at us. And they say, how in the world can you, in the circumstances in which you find yourself and the difficulties that are surrounding you, how in the world can you ever rejoice always? And yet we see it happening. We see the rejoicing always. So let me just remind you that rejoice always is an active choice, as it's your attitude. It is an active choice to focus on the Lord and the eternal treasures we freely receive from Him rather than on our difficult circumstances. We make a choice that we're going to look up and beyond our circumstances and we're going to rejoice in that which never changes in our lives. We're going to rejoice in Jesus we're going to rejoice in his promises. We're going to rejoice in his multiplied blessings that the scripture says he's bestowed upon us. One of the preachers that I like to hear is a man by the name of Erwin Lutzer. Dr. Lutzer pastored Moody Memorial Church for 36 years. He retired just a few years ago. He's written more than 50 books. And I've never heard him in person. I've heard him on video, but I've never heard him in person. So uh, he was going to be at a place where Mary and I could hear him, and we drove a great distance to be able to go and to be able to sit in that service and to hear him to deliver a message. He has a book about eternity and about what happens after death. And in that book, he tells a little story about he and a friend being out on Lake Michigan in Chicago, out in Lake Michigan. And out there on the lake, he started getting seasick. They were fishing, 
And he started getting seasick. The water was shifting and it was, it was moving and he was getting seasick. And so his friend told him to lift his eyes up off the water and look for a stable place, a stable building along the shore and keep his eyes fixed there. And this is what Lutzer wrote in his book. I chose the Sears Tower and discovered in a few minutes that I felt better. He, that is his friend, explained that the motion of a boat confuses our balance system if we look at the very object that is causing our movement. But we can handle the ups and downs in our eyes. We can handle the ups and downs if our eyes have a fixed object that is unmoved by our own vacillation. That's what he's saying when he says to us that we're to rejoice always. It is that we lift our eyes up off of the immediate circumstances, as difficult as they may be, and we look beyond those circumstances, and we rejoice in that which never changes, in that which is secure and certain, in that which is eternal, and those blessings that the Scripture has revealed to us over and over again of what God has done for us. Just to help you understand what I'm saying here, I'm going to give you a list. I, li I like lists, by the way. I'm going to give you a list. We can rejoice that we are forgiven and loved in Christ. We can rejoice that nothing can ever separate us from his love. We can rejoice that God is working in every circumstance for our good. We can rejoice that God will supply all our needs. We can rejoice that God will give us the strength we need. We can rejoice that we will live eternally even if we die physically. We can rejoice that no one can snatch us from his hand. We can rejoice that God will finish the work he started in our lives. We can rejoice that we have been extended mercy rather than justice. We can rejoice that we have the gift of God's word to guide and to comfort us. Do you understand what I'm saying? The list can go on. We lift up our eyes from our circumstances and we look at that which never changes and that which is eternal and we rejoice in the Lord and we do it always. In other words, to rejoice always means to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when the life around us is bobbing up and down. And I want to remind you one more time, this is a matter of obedience. This is not a matter of your feelings. Well, I don't feel like rejoicing. It's not a matter of how you feel. This is a matter of us obeying the Lord in these moments when our lives are being turned upside down, when there's things happening that we simply don't understand. We don't spend our time wallowing and focusing on that which we cannot change. We look at the one who is the constant and his word that is the constant in our lives, and we rejoice in those things. How many of you know the story of Habakkuk? Now, the fact is, if you came on Sunday nights, you would know that story because I taught through all the minor prophets. We covered every minor prophet on Sunday night over the last several months. One of those was the minor prophet Habakkuk. Let me just tell you his story for those of you that don't know. Habakkuk was a prophet of God. He's called a minor prophet. His book is called a minor prophet. Because not, not because his message was minor, but because it's a short book. It's three chapters long. Habakkuk had a problem. He was a prophet to the people of God, but the people of God weren't listening. The Israelites weren't listening. They were violating the law of God everywhere. They were disobeying God on every, at every turn. 
Uh, there, there was injustice everywhere. Everything you could imagine in the law of Moses, they were, they were doing the opposite. They were disobeying God. And so Habakkuk goes to God and he says, God, I don't understand this. You're letting your people get away with this. When are you going to bring your punishment? When are you going to bring your chastisement on your own people for their disobedience to you? Well, God answers back and God says, well, I'm going to, and I'm going to use the Chaldeans. I'm going to use the Babylonians. And they're going to come in, and they're going to be my instrument in my hand, and I'm going to bring my judgment on my people through the, Chal through the Chaldeans, through the Babylonians, who are going to come as my instrument. Well, that created another problem for Habakkuk. Habakkuk thought to himself and said to God, Lord, how is that? How is it that you're going to use a people that are more wicked than we are to punish a people that are less wicked than they are? Lord, how is it that you're going to use these Babylonians to bring us punishment when we are your people and we are less wicked than they are? And he couldn't understand. And ultimately, God tells him, well, I'm going to punish the Chaldeans as well. But God uses the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, as his instrument in his hand. And so now Habakkuk knows that what's coming is the judgment of God through the Babylonians, and they're going to come and they're going to plunder everything that is there. And so when you read the first verse of the first chapter of Habakkuk, there's this woe. There's this woe that you hear. But by the time you get to the end of the book, the last three verses of the book, chapter 3, He's worshiping. Listen to what he says. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You hear what he's saying? When your judgment comes through the Babylonians, and all of these things occur... There are no blossoms. There is no fruit. There are no olives. The fields don't yield, don't yield food. The flocks are destroyed or taken away. When all of these things happen, listen to what he says, verse 18, yet, here he is, he lifts his eyes up, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high heels. You hear what he says? He lifts up his eyes, and he looks beyond the circumstances that he can't understand, and he says, God, I'm going to rejoice in you. I'm going to rejoice in who you are. I'm going to rejoice in all of the multiplied blessings you have bestowed. I'm going to rejoice in you, even though all of these other things are going to be taken away. That's what he means when he says rejoice always. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about putting a fake smile on your face. He's not talking about uh, putting a, a bounce in your step as if you can manufacture it. He's talking about stop looking at the waters that are bobbing and weaving beneath you and around you and get your eyes on me and rejoice in me always. But then he comes to the second bullet point. He says, pray without ceasing. Again, the verb pray is the imperative. It's in the continuous voice. It means you keep on praying. And the qualifier 
is without ceasing. He just amplifies it without ceasing. You keep on praying without ceasing. You say, preacher, you mean I've got to keep my head bowed and my eyes closed and on my knees 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year? That's not what he's saying. Dr. Edmund Abair is one of my favorite commentators on Scripture, and he writes, Paul is calling the Thessalonian believers not to uninterrupted prayer, but rather to the practice of constantly recurring prayer in all circumstances. They are to live in a spirit of constant communion with God. And the reason I read this to you is for the next sentence. Listen to the next sentence. In the Christian life, the act of prayer is intermittent. But the spirit of prayer should be incessant. In the Christian life, the act of prayer is intermittent. But the spirit of prayer should be incessant. The act of prayer is something that we can do on occasion. We can get alone and get away from people. And we can get with God just ourselves and God alone. Or we can come to church and we can come to an altar on given moments, at given moments, and meet with God. But there is to be an incessant spirit of prayer so that every moment of every day we can breathe a prayer to God at any moment and know that God hears us. And that's the kind of prayer he means when he says to pray without ceasing. He's not telling you to go to your prayer closet and stay there 24-7. He's telling you to live in such a way that you have communion with God, that you have communion with God so that At any moment of any day, you can breathe a prayer to God and you can know because you're in fellowship with God that he hears and he'll answer your prayers. I want you to keep your place here and I want you to turn back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. You know that book that almost nobody ever reads? Most of the reason is because in those opening chapters, all the genealogies and all the names that nobody can pronounce. But if you miss it, if if you don't read it, you'll miss it. That's the thing. There's something in chapter 5 that I want to point out to you that illustrates what I'm talking about when we talk about pray without ceasing. If you were to look at the first chapter of this book, you'd find that it begins with the name Adam. In other words, the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, and it chases this genealogy all the way down to the 12 tribes of Israel. When you get to chapter 5, you're at one of the tribes of Israel called Gad. It's one of the sons of Jacob. And they're engaged in a war. They're engaged in a battle. Notice 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 19. It says, They made war with the Hagrites, Jeter, and Naphish, and Nodab. And they were helped against them. You'd miss this if you didn't read the book. And they were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand. In other words, they win the victory. And all who were with them. Why? For... They cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Now listen, if you were to back up, you would discover that they had various instruments of war, shields and swords and things that they were using. They were involved in hand-to-hand combat. They couldn't stop the battle, go back to the temple and get alone with God. They couldn't stop the battle and go find a quiet place and be alone with God. But you know what they did? 
while they're in the middle of the battle, in the hand-to-hand combat, with this incessant spirit of prayer, they were calling out and saying, Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help us. And it says that they won the battle because they called out to the Lord and they put their trust in Him. That's what it means to pray without ceasing. That's what he's telling us to do. He's not telling us that we can spend every moment 24-7 in our private area of prayer, our private place of prayer, but he's telling us that every moment of every day we can live in the spirit of prayer where we can talk to God at any moment of the day and know that he hears us. Let me illustrate it another way. A couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, Mary and I went to Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg. We like to go to Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg. If I have a choice between the beach or Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, I'll choose the beach every time. But the beach is a lot further away. And so occasionally we'll go to Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg. And and something you need to understand, I've been going to Gatlinburg area my whole life. When I was a boy growing up, my daddy brought our family to Gatlinburg. That was a a trip that we would make periodically. Before Pigeon Forge was developed like it is now, and we'd come to Gatlinburg. We'd come up through the Great Smoky Mountains. We didn't come by the interstate. You come up some of the back roads. You, You come up the back road that brings you up by the Cherokee Indian Reservation. And we'd always stop at the Cherokee Indian Reservation. Now, I'm not sure if we stopped there because it was a good restroom break, or whether he wanted us to look around, because we never really bought anything at the Cherokee Indian Reservation. But you know, that's where we stopped. But then we would come on in, and we would stay in Gatlinburg. And I've been to Gatlinburg many times over the course of my life. I've been in every store in Gatlinburg. I've been in every store in Pigeon Forge. I've been drugged into every one of the stores <laughs> repeatedly. But here's the thing. Though we've been going, I've been going to Gatlinburg and the Great Smoky Mountains my whole life. I had never in my life been to Cade's Cove. Now I know, y'all are gasping. How could you have missed it? I don't know. I don't know how we missed it. And so two or three years ago, uh, two friends of ours said, we'll meet you at Pigeon Forge. Spend two or three days resting. We'll eat out and while we were there one day, the, the conversation came up about Cade's Cove, and I said, where's that? I, I've never been there. And so this, this man said, well, why don't we go there tomorrow? And so the next day they pull up. I get up in the passenger seat. Mary gets in the back seat with his wife, and off we go. Cade's Cove is about an 11-mile uh, circle down here in, in, in the bottom of you know, the valley amidst these mountains, and you stop at different places, and you walk out, and you see these really old buildings and some fascinating things. But as we were driving toward Cade's Cove, the driver said, Lord, let us see a bear. (laughs) Now, he didn't tell me there were bears down there. That may be the reason we didn't go. I already had a deer. She was in the back seat. Sort of corny, isn't it? Amen. So he 
said, Lord, let us see a bear. We, we drove on a little while, didn't see a bear. I heard him say anything. He said, Lord, please let us see a bear. He must have said that two or three or four times. And then I know beneath his breath, when he wasn't saying it out loud, I know he was saying it uh, underneath his breath. Lord, let us see a bear. Lord, let us see a bear. Well, sure enough, we finally turned at one spot, and there off in the field was a bear running across the field. Now, here's the thing. I don't, it sort of at a distance, it may have just been a bear cub, but it was a bear. We kept going. We weren't far from finishing up the 11 miles. Suddenly, the cars are all stopped. There's four or five cars ahead of us all stopped, and we stopped behind them. There's no way to go around. You can't go around. You stop, and you watch, and here comes a bear across the road, and I saw a bear behind <laughs> going up the mountains. You didn't get that either, did you? <laughs> going up the mountains, and I got to see the bear. You say, what's the significance of that illustration? What that man was doing is exactly what he was talking about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he said, pray without ceasing. He wasn't supposed to get alone somewhere in a private place and say, God, let us see a bear today. He might have done that. I don't know. But he was breathing that incessant, consistent, constant prayer to God. Lord, let us see a bear today. The preacher's never seen a bear. Let the, let the preacher see a bear today. That's what he's talking about. To rejoice always means to get your eyes off of the shifting sand around you, off of the waves that are tossing the boat of your life and keeping you unstable, and get your eyes up and look at that which is steady and that which is constant and that which is eternal and rejoice in the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and in the promises that he's given. And then he says, pray, pray, just constantly keep a spirit of prayer no matter what you're facing they were facing persecution and hardship. They were losing their jobs, some of them losing their lives, if not losing their lives, being beaten and left. Being beaten and left. Think about it. And Paul says, even in those circumstances, I want you to rejoice always, and I want you to pray without ceasing. Just let it constantly be the breathing of prayer to God, knowing that he hears. Can I just help you for a moment? You don't have to just be in a private, quiet place to commune with God. Now, you should have a quiet, private place to get alone with God. But you can commune with God every moment of every day, even in the most desperate of your circumstances. Praying without ceasing means that we have developed prayer habits in our lives that are continuously recurring, whether we're in our prayer closets or we're in the middle of a raging battle. We're just lifting up our voices and we're saying, oh God, help us. But then comes the third bullet point, maybe the hardest of the three. He says, in everything, give thanks. Again, I tell you that the verb give thanks is imperative. It's in the continuous mood. It means you're supposed to keep on giving thanks. And then it's qualified by the words in everything. But there's something different. The previous two qualifiers are about time. This qualifier is about scope. He says, in everything, give thanks. And please be mindful, he didn't say feel thankful for all things. He doesn't even say for 
all things be thankful. What it says is, in everything give thanks. There's a funny little story about two men who were walking through a field one day. Suddenly they looked up and they saw a bull off in the distance. Instantly they began to run towards the nearest fence, but sure enough, and sure enough, the bull took off after them. It didn't take long for them to realize that they weren't going to make it. They weren't going to outrun this bull. So one of the men shouted out to his friend as they were running for their lives, Say a prayer, John! We're in for it! John answered back, I can't! I've never prayed in public in my entire life! His friend yelled back, But you have to! The bull is catching up to us! So breathlessly, John said, All right, all right! I'll say the only prayer I know, the one my father used to say at the dinner table, dear Lord, make us truly thankful for what we're about to receive. (laughs) I guess that's one way to give thanks in everything. But listen to what this author, what this commentator from Scripture says. This does not mean that we emotionally delight in whatever difficult circumstances occur, but that we realize that in any circumstance, God is in control. We can pray to him and we can give him thanks for this even in all circumstances. The issue, he says, is not, the issue is obedience, not emotion. The issue is obedience, not emotion. We can't always control how we feel, but we can control what we think about and dwell on. When we choose to trust God and rejoice in all circumstances in God, feelings of delight and comfort often follow. And then he finishes out by saying, Paul never instructed the church to thank God for evil events, but to thank God that even in evil times and circumstances, our hope remains and God continues his work in our lives. We can give thanks in everything even if the things that are going on around us aren't something for which we can give thanks. You say, is there an example of that? There sure is in the New Testament. Before Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, they were in the city of Philippi, Acts chapter 16. They They come to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. But in Acts chapter 16, they're in Philippi, 100 miles away. They're preaching the gospel. People are being saved. You know the story, don't you? They're taken under arrest. They're beaten. They're beaten. And they're thrown into prison. Here, let me just read it to you. Acts 16. Then the multitude rose up together against them. That's Paul and Silas. Against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates tore off their clothes. That's off the clothes off of Paul and Silas. And commanded them to be, to, to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Can it get much worse than that? Beaten, falsely accused, placed in the darkest, dampest, deepest part of the prison. Your feet are in stocks, they're bleeding. Their skin is broken. What you hear Paul and Silas doing is belly aching, right? Listen to what it says, chapter 16, verse 25. But at midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's in everything, what? Giving thanks, isn't it? That's rejoicing always. That's praying without ceasing. Now listen, if you don't hear anything else, well, there is one other thing I want you to hear a little later, but if you hear one of two things, I want you to hear this one. I want you to listen to the last sentence of verse 25. They're they're singing and they're praying. And the prisoners were listening to them. When we bellyache, when we grumble, when we let our bad attitudes prevail in our lives, when we criticize, when we're negative, I want to tell you something. We're hurting the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's what stands out to the people who don't know Jesus when they see us going through the most desperate of circumstances. And yet in those circumstances, we're giving thanks to God and we're lifting up our hearts continually in prayer and we're rejoicing always. They look at us and they say, I want what he's got. I want what she's got. Paul and Silas couldn't have been in more difficult circumstances, and yet there they are singing and praising God, rejoicing always and in everything, giving thanks to the Lord. Can you imagine? I told you I like lists, so let me just show you how this works out of a list that I have here. I'm thankful for the taxes I pay because it means I'm employed. I'm thankful for the clothes that fit a little too snug because it means I've had plenty to eat. I'm thankful for a lawn that needs mowing, windows that need cleaning, and gutters that need fixing because it means I have a home. I'm thankful for the spot I find at the far end of the parking lot because it means I'm capable of walking. I'm thankful for my huge heating and cooling bill because it means I'm comfortable at home. I'm thankful for all the complaining I hear about our government. I'm thankful for all the complaining I hear about our government because it means we have freedom of speech. I'm thankful for the person behind me in church who sings off-key because it means I can hear. I'm thankful for the piles of laundry because it means my loved ones are nearby. I'm thankful for the alarm that goes off in the early morning hours because it means I have a job. I'm thankful for the weariness and aching muscles at the end of the day because it means I'm alive. We can spend all of our time filled with negatives and criticism and grumbling and griping and complaining. And the world looks on and they say, I've got that everywhere. I don't need any more of that. But then they see a Christian who's going through the deepest, darkest moments of life who lifts their eyes up and focuses on Jesus and rejoices always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything. And they say, I want what he's got. I want what she's got. Clovis Chapel is not a name that most of us will know, most of you will know. But he was a well-known Methodist preacher in the early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this one time. He said, the reason we are so thankless, are you with me? Lean in with me here. 
The reason we are so thankless is because we are so thoughtless. Next time, think about that when your meal comes and it's not just exactly the way you wanted it cooked at your dinner table. Think about all the people that don't have a restaurant or a dinner table or a cook or a waitress or waiter to bring them a meal. And can I tell you something else? When you learn to be thankful in everything, it changes. It changes you. China Inland Mission may be a name you're familiar with. It's changed names now. It's no longer called that. Uh, Jonathan Goforth, that early missionary, that pioneer missionary who started China Inland Mission. One of the missionaries with China Inland Mission was a man named Henry Frost. He spent a lot of his life in China before they were kicked out. He spent a lot of his life in China. He got some bad news one day while he was in China from back home. And this is what he wrote in his journal. I had received new, sad news from home, and deep shadows had covered my soul. I prayed, but the darkness did not vanish. I summoned myself to endure, but the darkness only deepened. Then I went to an inland station. That's a mission station. I went to an inland station and saw on the wall of the mission home these words. Try thanksgiving. He writes, I did, and in a moment, every shadow was gone, not to return. Now, I can't promise you that every shadow will be gone when you start giving thanks in everything, but I can promise you it'll change your entire perspective on the things that are going on around you. I've mentioned to you before about the Message Bible, the translation by Eugene Peterson. It's, it's on your phone app. You don't have to pay for it. If you've got version, it's free. It's a paraphrase. He paraphrases this verse about giving thanks and everything this way. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. And what I like about it is that first phrase. Thank God no matter what happens. I'll be honest with you. I struggle with that. I'll bet there's a lot of you that struggle with that too. But these are commands. These aren't a matter of our emotions. Because God knows when we begin to do these things, we begin to have thanks living. It lifts us. It begins to lift us out of the despair and lift us out of the difficulty and above that difficulty. So that, you remember the second phrase I said I want you to remember? That they were listening in the jail cell. That was the first one. Here's the second one. You might want to write it down. Please don't forget it. Christian joy soars upward on the wings of prayer and thanksgiving. Christian joy soars upward on the wings of prayer and thanksgiving. Where there is prayer and there is thanks living, there will inevitably be the joy where you can rejoice. And so he says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. 
Let me finish by just pointing something else out to you. He goes on in verse 18. He says, for. Why should we do these three things? This. It's a singular, but it refers back to this entire trio. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks for this. Rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's talking to people who are being persecuted. Their lives are endangered. Some of them have lost their lives. They've lost their livelihood. Some of them have been beaten. They're ostracized. They're mistreated. He said, rejoicing always and praying without ceasing and giving thanks in everything is God's will for you. And will I say it's, can I say it's God's will for you too and for me? That doesn't mean that knowing that it's God's will, you can do it. Excuse me, doesn't mean you must do this for God so wills it. It means knowing that God's will, God's willed it, you can do it. You say, what's the difference in those two phrases? One is you're doing it on your own. You're working it up in your own strength. You must do this for God so wills it. I, I gotta do this myself. The other phrase, knowing that, that God wills it, you can do it, says, God, you'll help me. You'll enable me. You'll empower me. You'll strengthen me. You'll be with me to help me to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Because this is your will. This is what you want from me. You're not saying, work this up yourself. You're saying, I'll come to you and help you. Whenever God tells you what his will is, he's not saying, go do it and figure it out for yourself. He's saying, this is my will. I want you to do it. I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to come and I'm going to fill you with my presence. And I'm going to help you do it. So I want to close with four things that I want to ask you to do. I hope you did the things from last week. We're not going to take a test to see if you did them. If you didn't do them, you failed. But you don't have to be a failure. You can do these things this week. Number one, I want you to read these verses repeatedly this week until until you've memorized them. I want you to just read them until you've memorized them. Don't put your Bible up yet. We're going to read it again. I want you to read them until you've memorized them. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. I want them to become those three bullet points. I want them to become a part of your mind so that they are constantly at the forefront of your thinking. Number two, I want you to make a list of the things that God has done for you. And I want you to stop this week every day and I want you to give him thanks. Just make a list. Lord, I thank you today for this. I thank you today for this. I thank you today for this. Number three, I want you to look for ways to give thanks even for the difficulties of your life. Some of you are going to lay there and waller in your misery until you decide you're going to take the counsel of the Apostle Paul and rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. You're going to waller, you're going to waller in your misery. Look for ways this week to give thanks even for the difficulties of your life. And finally, focus your mind on who God is and on what he's done. Lift up your eyes. Get them off the shifting sand. Get them off the the moving waters around you. Get them on the constant, eternal God of heaven. I want to close with just one last story. 
probably some of you know the name Corey Timboom. By, by the way, if your kids are in school and your parents, don't put your Bible up, we're going to read it again here in a minute. Your kids are in school and your, your teacher comes and says, we, I want you to do a book report. I'm going to let you choose a book. You do a book report. Can I ask you a favor? Stop sending them to the library. Send them to me. Let me give them the names of some, some really good books that your children would benefit from reading, even though they're older books, and let them write a report on that book. And in the process, they get to share the gospel with their teacher. Corey Timboom wrote the book, The Hiding Place. Uh, Billy Graham turned it into a movie. You probably have seen the movie, even if you haven't read the book. If you haven't seen the movie, you can still see it. Corey Timboom was in a Nazi prison, a death camp. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. She re related a story about how she stood in line uh, feeling forsaken and defiled because they took all of her clothes away from her. And she stood there naked with all these other women. Suddenly the thought, she said, came to her that Jesus had hung naked on the cross. A sense of wonder, she said, and worship overcame her during that seemingly forsaken moment in that prison camp. Corey said she leaned forward and she whispered to her sister, Betsy, they took his clothes too. They took his clothes too. Betsy gasped and said, oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. They took his clothes too, and I never thanked him.